The world's a changing place. The world's a different kind of a place. All right, here we go. Let's, uh, let's pray. Let's go. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. All right, nice to see you. It was a nice service this morning. Thanks for the bells. Uh, that, was, that was good. So um, questions about anything? Everybody okay? Lent is here in a matter of days, you know, 10 days or something like that. Is this the 12th? 10 days? So, um, you know, come along. There'll be ashes on Ash Wednesday in the morning and mass in the evening as well and ashes. So uh, begin to think about how you make good use of the 40 days plus six. We'll see what happens. Uh, okay, so it's very nice to, it's very nice to see you. Uh, we sort of carry on with this, just this idea of the church is meant for everybody and everywhere and every time and uh, the great need to be welcoming and we shouldn't make it harder than it is. There's all kinds of really great reasons to go to church. And one of them is uh, just because it should be safe. It'd be better if I just say it is safe. Of course, the church has had horrible stumbles and done horrible things and you know, got, got out of its lane several times across the course of history. But at least for today, let's just start with the notion that the church is a safe place. And then you know, we can always think about how we preserve that. But, Jesus always talks about being otherworldly. And in a moment, we're going to engage Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he talks about his disciples and he himself being of another place. So the world is a mess, and, and there's a range of reasons why you can think about it being a mess. But one of the fundamental reasons is it's a dangerous place. And I'm not, you know, you don't have to work too hard. You can think of you know, internationally, you can think of your own hometown, you can think about the United States, you can think about a range of things. And, you know, the world, um, people are unsettled. The last four or five years have been difficult for folks, and they have felt quite undone. And Christians have been nervous too, because they feel as if the tide has turned against them, and what will happen, and on and on we go. So we want to look at those things and, and just kind of think about that. But just for the start, uh, I, you know, I want to remind you that Lutherans at least have this notion that our troubles are three, the devil, the world, and our flesh. Now that's not unique to Lutherans. I mean, that's a common theme across denominations and theology, that our, our temptations come from you know, our own wicked hearts, from the world around us, and from Satan who enters our world, world to undo us. So we'll need to talk about how to be protected from that, but at least give me this at point number two, that the church is the safest place in the world. And, you know, I know that there's uh, data to the contrary. I am, I, in fact, I thought about doing a whole apologetic about this first, and I thought that might take you in a different direction, but then we've done it in the past. But the church is the safest place in the world for these reasons, that this is a place where you're soaked in holiness. We did that a couple of weeks ago, and this is also a place where you're brightened with divine light, right? You're bathed in light. So transfiguration next Sunday, what will happen to the disciples? They get bathed in the light, and if you look at the icon of the transfiguration in advance, you'll notice that Jesus is the source of the light. The darkness is behind him, and the light doesn't come from the sky. The light comes from his face, and it reflects onto other people's faces so intently that it pushes the disciples down the mountain. But Elijah and Moses, who are holy and alive, aren't bothered by it in the least. It's the most normal thing to chat with Jesus and his shiny face. 
And you should always remember that Jesus is here protecting you personally. And I want to give you a couple of examples of that as we go, because I think it might strengthen you. Uh, when people pray or when they talk, um, more often people say to me, Jesus is distant, than do they say Jesus is near. Now it could be I have a skewed sample of people that I talk to, that maybe you don't come and talk to me when everything is cooking just fine. But you know, in general, one of the common complaints is Jesus seems distant. And that's often because people feel threatened or they've been wounded. Uh, the world seems dangerous to them and they don't quite know where to turn. But I assure you right now that Jesus is protecting you personally, that he stays with you in the midst. And it's really, really important for you to assert against the devil, the world, and the flesh. It's really important for you to rebuke those things and renounce them. And it's extraordinarily important for you to say then what is true. You lift up your eyes and you look around and you see that Jesus is with you. If you go in the sanctuary, the overriding message is that Jesus is there. I actually had a moment where I, even though I was at the altar, was looking up imagining. I thought to myself, what would it take to turn that center beam and the cross beam into a crucifix. Then I'm thinking to myself, huh, I wonder what it costs to do something like the Sistine Chapel on the top of that. See, this is what I think about when I'm not thinking about you. Every once in a while, you know, there's a moment for reverie there. Uh, look up sometime and just wonder to yourself, right? Uh, so being in church, right? keeps you safe for this life and the next. And I think that's an important thing to say. We talked a little bit last week about how people have given up on creation and think the world is constructed instead. And so uh, what we need to do is, you know, rejoice in the world that we've been given and uh, go on the way. Now, uh, I give you then this next bit. Lutherans uh, should do better with saints. We like them in the confessions. We talk about how much we love them as an example of faithfulness, as a direction on the holy way, as a confession of God's good gifts to people on earth. And, um, you know, we don't maybe speak of the saints as often or as thoroughly as maybe other, maybe the Catholics or the Orthodox, but we can maybe learn something. Now, I am well aware that the history of the saints, and even this one, uh, can be uh, embellished. And you know, one of the reasons to be critical of them is that's not how it really happened. Well, you know, there's history and there's history. And you can be sensitive to that if you like. But I also, uh, at least, the, the stories fit together too neatly, right, sometimes. And so they're clearly being used as a catechetical tool, as a teaching tool, rather than an historical document. Okay, that said, the truth is that many, many Christians went to their death between zero and 300, and many of them horribly to their death, and many, many people saw these things happen. And people took those stories and used them in a way that would be edifying for you and me, that would teach a lesson. So, I give you St. Felicity, uh, companion of St. Perpetua, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, martyred together. And I give you that as a way of showing how a person can hold together pain and joy, danger and joy, suffering and joy, 
a cruel world and joy. So, you know, I sort of just give you this, uh, her feast day is the seventh, you know, she uh, roughly, when you see the cross, 203, it means that's the year she died. When you see a cross in an icon, for example, uh, it almost always means, if people are careful, if the artist is careful in artwork or if the iconographer is careful, it means that the person was martyred. So you'll walk into old churches sometimes, and um, Kirby and I were in the church of Hippolytus, uh, you know, uh, earlier, uh, I guess late last year. Um, one of the earliest churches, and there, you know, lined up on both sides in a row are, are the pastors and, and, and people of the area. I mean, one after another. I mean, that there must be, you know, 25 or 30, every one of them holding a cross, right? Which means every one of them, um, the people in charge came for them. So just this, you know, uh, and, and you know, just sort of, just sort of hear this for what it is actually, right? As one reaction to danger, Felicity was a Christian slave in Carthage. She was about eight months pregnant when she was arrested together with Saint Perpetua. Uh, as I recall, for, for her, she was um, quite wealthy. So you have the two ends, which is really interesting because you have the two ends of the of the spectrum, right? Together in the church. So partly what they're trying to tell you is is this is what the community of the otherworldly looks like. Um, in prison, Felicity's great struggle, now this is really interesting, right? If I went to prison, this wouldn't be at the top of my struggles, was the fear that she would not be able to join her Christian companions in the arena. Now we could have a long discussion about seeking martyrdom, avoiding martyrdom, embracing it, running from it, provoking it, uh, there's, a, there's a robust Christian discussion about what should be done. Uh, you know, sort of my baseline thing is you don't need to seek pain. It will find you, right? It'll come for you. Um, although toward the end of this, I want to actually observe a little bit if your life is too pain-free, whether that's uh, a notion of uh, being in, in demonic clutches, if you will. So we'll talk about that. But, you know, her great struggle was fear she would not be able to join her Christian companions in the arena. Law forbade the execution of pregnant women. This is like, this is great, right? So you are, you are throwing people to the lions. You are putting them in with um, gladiators. I think Perpetua was, was stomped to death by a rabid cow in the arena, right? You kind of think to yourself, if you've been to the Colosseum in Rome, you know, and you walk through where they kept the animals, you kind of go, you know, what, what possesses people? And yet their modicum of, of morality is, they won't kill you if you're pregnant. However, the minute you give birth, see ya, right? And Felicity thought she might be forced to wait and die with others, so outside of her community, right? Outside of her church, if you will, instead of with her Christian friends with whom she had borne so much. Together they stormed heaven and she was able to give birth. So they pray that she'll give birth to a life so she can die. This is a very interesting kind of story, right? When her labor pains drew comment from her guards who foretold worse torments to come. And this, of course, if you talk to people who are in jail, in trouble, um, under the gun, you know, to torment people, is mocking Jesus on the cross, right? What's the point except evil? right, to increase someone's suffering. 
So, you know, she, she goes into labor uh, and, you know, the guards mock her and she says, today it is I who am suffering what I suffer. But then it will be another in me who will suffer for me. So this is Jesus. So today I'm suffering, but tomorrow Jesus will suffer in me. So this very crisp notion of being joined to Jesus, that Jesus is always with me, as Luther says, that we're cemented to Jesus, that I don't suffer without Jesus. Now, I'm just going to say to you as we go, I've given you, in the course of this lesson, I've given you several things that will make you maybe a little edgy and actually know that I'm doing that to you. In fact, toward the end, I actually want to make sure that I give you a crisp, you know, exposition of some stuff that I want to talk about the dark night of the soul. Nevertheless, you know, you need to read other people because these people are part of the church and these things can be understood in a way which do not violate our Lutheran way of um, engaging Christ in the scriptures. So there is a way that you can speak about being joined to Christ. Luther talked that way. There's a way that you can talk about Jesus being present and protecting me. That's my baptism. So, you know, kind of think about this in this way. You don't automatically have to say, or we don't have to automatically have to say, Ooh, that touched a bit of a Catholic nerve for me. Just kind of relax for a moment and listen to somebody who's about to die. Just, just kind of see what you think. Today it is I who am suffering what I suffer, giving birth. But then it will be another in me, Jesus, who will suffer for me. Jesus does suffer for me. Because I too will be suffering for him, which is in fact true. She will be executed because she could have easily gone free just by renouncing Christ. Felicity gave birth to a little girl who was adopted by a Christian woman. The night before they died, Felicity and her friends shared a final meal together. You, like all your Eucharistic bells should be going off. And this, of course, is what they intend for you. The story is written for you to think this way. They want you to think, of course their life was Eucharistic, or even, of course they celebrated the Eucharist before they went to death. The viaticum, the something for the way, translated, right, quite literally, the viaticum, via, way, a bit for the way, a source for the way, a strength for the way. You know, if Nelson loves me with his, my, you know, on, at my last death, he will push that host into my mouth. And if my death certificate said, choked on the body of Jesus, I will go to heaven a happy man, right? <laughs> it's all going to be okay, right? If my choice is, ooh, I don't know if we can eat, and also uh, the Holy Supper's here, hey, take the Holy Supper hands down, okay? I'm just, just a little forewarning. The next day... They marched into the amphitheater for execution. Felicity was described, and now this is, might be the most reliable bit of history here. Felicity was described not able to contain her joy. She suffered death with Saint Perpetua and went to her eternal reward. This is not how we talk about our suffering, but I would at least suggest to you we should have a good think about it. Because there's a long history in the church of people who knew they were done for and yet embraced that with joy. I am not giving you political advice. I am not advising you on passivism versus activism. All I'm saying to you is there are known to us a group of Christians who were in far worse shape than we and in the end, 
they were able to receive what came to them, including their death with joy. How in the heck does that happen? Because let's face it, I mean, everybody everywhere, even in our church body and here, I think, in our congregation, have been a bundle of nerves for the last three or four years. We've held together pretty well. Interesting, I mean, I, attendance is higher now than it was pre-COVID as a percentage of members. That's a very interesting statistic because most places, it's really an outlier to have 75% of our members come uh, on a Sunday or during the week. And before COVID, it was you know 73 and change. So that we've fully recovered and gone a bit more is very interesting. I would suggest to you that that's because of the catechumen and because of the Eucharist and because of this notion of this is your family, which Pastor Nelson is always talking about, that these children and these young folks and you all are one family. And you can't abandon your family forever and survive, or you can't survive well. So try to think about it in this way, and let's just see if we can get a little better with this. Because there's no promise that the world will get better. Uh, there's a no you know, guarantee that America will survive. And you know, honestly, um, the Lord will have himself a church, but he doesn't say it'll be called the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And frankly, he doesn't even say that it'll be on these two square blocks. So the Lord will have himself a church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. However, you shouldn't be taking that for granted, nor should I. He has himself a church where people are faithful. He has himself a church in places where, even though people are suffering and in danger, they still proceed in faithfulness and joy. The first 300 years of the church are proof of that, and people sorted it out in many, many different ways. So for you then, point three, how can you go forward with this kind of confidence and joy? And you know, I just, you know, you go to church first. I mean, I've said often, and I'll say it again, the daily Eucharist is, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to me, right? To have the, to have the Eucharist every day. Because Christ is here, there for the touch, that Christ would hear our prayers, right? That he would speak to us. The sermon was genius again this morning. I'm so grateful for those sermons. I don't know exactly how something like that actually gets produced, but it's a miracle. And then the way of Jesus, right? And Jesus touches us with these gifts and he keeps us safe. And when you're safe, you can proceed with joy. When you're safe, which is to mean you're cemented to Jesus, you're surrounded by Jesus and his angels, that you're held close, your mind is held captive, as St. Paul says, by the words of Christ, then you're gonna be okay. And joy, as I've said a couple of times before, but I really want you to hold on to this, is when your will is aligned with God's will, or when simply you listen to Jesus' words when he says, follow me. When you actually follow, you're guaranteed a life of joy. To be joyful is to be holy, and to be holy is to be in Christ. And so, you know, it's, you, know you can do what you want with St. Felicity, but I can show you 10,000 other examples I can show them to you in literature, I can show you them art, I can show you to the cathedrals, I can show you them to you in catacombs. I can show you again and again. And they can't be all embellishments. Take a trip through the catacombs in Rome. You know, take a walk through and look how they put altars before their dead and made frescoes and icons under the earth because that's where they were forced to go. And yet, there they were celebrating the Holy Supper. But chief behind this is how Jesus prays for us. So turn the page, and then this little bit from John 17. 
What's so interesting about John 17, the entire chapter is a prayer and it's quite stylized. It's not linear. Uh, you have to know what's going on in John's gospel in order to understand it. You know, some of the other, Mark, for example, is a straight shot. It's very, he doesn't have time for the Christmas story. Mark has got to get Jesus on the cross. He sees the evil, he assesses the situation, he calmly heals, raises the dead, calms the storms, and pushes forward. There's this very straight path in Mark, and then, and then, and then, and then. John is different. John sort of swirls around and uh, sort of moves to things again and again. He hints at stories, so John doesn't really have a Passover or a Lord's Supper, or does he? Right? How does it work? He doesn't, um, you know, tell all the stories the other guys do, but do they keep, and Jesus' prayer is an example of this. So I actually, uh, I struggled to edit it, because first I wanted you to have the whole thing, but if I give you the whole thing, it's so hard to, unless you're going to kind of word by word it, it's so hard to sort of pull it together. So here, here, let me give you the summary first, and then we'll read this, right? So Jesus gives his words to his disciples, and they know the truth, and they're protected by that truth. This, uh, Jesus comes and he does his work. His work is to give the disciples his teaching. And they know it and they're protected by it and they're surrounded by this embrace of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And on they go in the holy name in joy. Despite everybody now knows they're going down to die. And Jesus will not be dissuaded. All right? So just listen to how he prays. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. So in John, the word hour is the word for when things get done. It's like a telos, you know, this is the point and we're gonna check this box. So the hour has come. Give eternal life to all whom you have given me. So the father gave the disciples to the son and he was supposed to be a good steward of them. And this is eternal life that they know you, right, this intimate knowing, the one true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So you know the Father and you know the Son. I've glorified you on earth, that is, I did what I was told, I lived in holiness, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's so interesting that the work that's already been done is the accomplishment, that to fully proceed to his death is, is, to, is to finish up. For I've given them the words that you gave me. So Jesus goes to work. He goes to work on his disciples. He goes to work with his own words so that, next line, they may know the truth. And they have received my words and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. So basically you have Jesus putting the family together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Disciples, Church. And then this beautiful thing, I'm praying for them. And over and over in Scripture, it says that Jesus is praying for you. I'm praying for them now uh, in Hebrews 7, which is not a story about the past or a story about the future. Hebrews is a book about the present. What is Jesus doing right now in heaven? And Hebrews 7:25 says, Jesus lives to make intercession for us. So he's praying for them now. Jesus is praying for you, Romans 8. He makes, he prays for you in Romans 8, as does the Holy Spirit. So Jesus spends his days 
praying for you. And later I've given you the quote where it says, Jesus prays for you, from the Lutheran Confessions, Jesus prays for you as do the angels and the, and the saints on earth, and maybe even the saints in heaven. You're just going to go, come on now, bump that just a little farther. It's all going to be okay. Don't everybody get so nervous. It's all going to be fine. Holy Father, keep them in your name. So keep them where I put them, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So hold them together as a family. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. You have this sense of Jesus being beside them, surrounding them, embracing them, holding them dear in his arms. So even if you remember the icon of Mary's death, Mary is laid out in front of all the people. Jesus is standing there. And in his arms, he holds a baby Mary. He even holds his mother. He is her salvation. Right? I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Isn't this interesting? He actually says a prayer where he starts by saying, we're all going to die. <laughs> and he ends by saying, and we're all pretty Pretty, pretty happy about that. This is not how you and I, frankly, have reacted to the last three or four or five years. And it's not the way that we have normally engaged our life. Uh, you know, I understand the difficulties of people dying and the shockiness of that, and especially when it's unexpected or, or on the other side, drawn out and just interminable suffering. But try to, try to think about, you know, why do you, why do you come to church? Because it's safe. You're safe in life and in death. So point four, here's the point. Jesus has overcome the troubles of those who challenge us. Um, Jesus leaves us when he ascends to heaven, but he never really leaves us. He just comes to us in a different way. So you don't find Jesus um, walking around, but you find him in baptism. You find him in his words. You find him... In our memories, you find him in the scriptures. You find him in the Eucharist, right? So that said then, I want to see if I can take apart your world a bit more. And my world too, of course. We need to be more and also less scared of the devil. Right? The Grammys aside, that's kind of, you know, new old news. So, but first, just a little description for you from the large catechism. Now, one of the interesting things is, is that the devil is actually pretty easy to get a grip on. There's just a very few things you actually need to know about him. It's just different iterations. So the devil is proud and the devil is a liar. And the spirit of the devil is rebellion. If you just know that much, you're going to be fine. The devil is proud. The devil is a liar. And it is the spirit of rebellion. It just takes different, the lies take different iterations. The rebellion takes different iterations. The pride takes different iterations. But look, large catechism is really good. Then comes the devil. And now just think about, just, th just overlay this description on American society for the last three or four years. And then you tell me whether w what we live in is devilish or not. Just, just, just listen to this, right? 
Then comes the devil inciting and provoking in all directions. Inciting and provoking in all directions. But especially agitating matters that concern the conscience and spiritual affairs. Namely, to induce us to despise and disregard both the word and works of God. So our increasingly unbelieving society, you know, our increasingly skeptical society. To tear us away from faith, hope, and love, our increasingly anti-church society. And bring us into misbelief, false security, and obduracy. Or, on the other hand, despair and denial of God, blasphemy. And innumerable other shocking things. So what happens to us? And you can, you can actually see this if you just look at American society. We've broken down into two camps, the proud and sure and the weak and terrorized. And you can go back and forth between them, but this is what chaos always does. You know, it's really interesting, the kind of continuing hint of anarchy. And you remember, anarchy is not new to America. In Chicago in the 20s and into the 30s, right, there was you know, bombs being placed and things going off. This is not a new thing. But always, it's so interesting, on the right and on the left, people who sort of uh, think they're the toughest guy around, so if all the rules go away, certainly I will be the guy who will be in charge. All right, this is how anarchy works. It, a spirit of rebellion that is proudly, proudly suggests that they should be in charge. Sort of internalized and then externalized onto other people. I mean, it's demonic. Chaos is demonic. There's a great study that came out last week which basically said, uh, I think it was a Stanford psychologist, pick up your room. It's so interesting because when things get proven that you know that are true, but they basically said this is the simple, you know, study, 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 and now here's the tagline. Disorder causes anxiety. You kind of go, Genesis 1, come on, pick up your socks. What's the first thing the Lord did? Created order, tohu wabohu. I mean, Dr. Bynes did a great job of this at the retreats, right? The world is just a tumult and the Lord has to kind of hold it together. And then he sorts it out. And when he sorts it out, he says, ah, that's good. He puts it in order, day after day, thing after thing, name after name. And then he goes, and everybody can be like, we can walk in the garden in the cool of the day. Everything's just fine. So we should be more afraid of this. And now I will actually say to you, you know, uh, what's sort of interesting is that and you, you know, the church is always like this, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is, you know, you live in a world where people stop calling sin sins. I mean, the abortion debate right now is really, you know, there was a congressman or senator who to the State of the Union, you might have seen this, wore a pin that had said abortion and, and the, the O was, a, was a, a, love, a heart. So basically abortion is, you know, what used to be argued as a tragedy and then a necessity. Now it's a matter of something we should all love. And you sort of go, ripping the child out of, out of the womb of a mother. This is what we should, this is at the State of the Union, these are the sort of things we should elevate, embrace as our highest gift. The things we love, you kind of go, have you, do you, have you ever read about child sacrifice in the scriptures? Right? You just kind of go, how is it that we can't sort of see this? And yet, of course, we can't see it because it pleases us. So, you know, and when everything is just about our construct and our pleasure, well, I mean, often my pleasure has to do with abusing you. 
pushing you down, stealing from you. Often my pleasure is in my pride of saying I'm better than you, crushing you. So it's just such an interesting, it's such an interesting nothing newness, like nothing new under the sun. So in some sense we've lost, also the casual, I mean there's the casual embrace of witchcraft. Have people never read Faust? Do you, do you, I mean, all you can do is hope that people see enough of Satan that it scares them back into never seeing Satan again. But this embrace of the demonic is really quite stunning. Uh, and this is the thing you need to guard yourself from and never touch. It's just, it's, it's quite horrifying. So we've lost our, our sense of sin, we've lost our sense of witchcraft, you know, we're, we're hard-hearted, you know, toward the weak, the poor, we, um, I just, there was just a bill introduced, I think, in Massachusetts this week about prisoners could lighten their sentence if they'd agree to donate, uh, it starts with, I think, bone marrow, but then how soon will it be before you give a kidney and it will knock five, especially to a rich person in Boston. You know, you give a kidney or maybe, you know, one of your eyes. Some billionaire needs a cornea transplant and you happen to be a perfect, you start to go, we have seen this. We've seen this in the Nazis. We've seen this in China. China regularly harvests the organs of the people they execute. You kind of look around, you go, really? Is this really where we want to go? None of this, I just want to say to you, is that none of this is political. This is all simply just a matter of evil and good, right? That all people are created in the dignity of God. And that when we use other people for our pleasure, this is the classic proper argument against prostitution. People are not things to be used for our pleasure. You know, there's all this stuff about sex workers' rights and all this kind of stuff. There's something much more baseline than all of that, which is, can you use another person for your pleasure and pay for it and just say it's a-okay? Sorry, no harm, no foul. Only if you atomize life so much that we are, as you know, one uh, philosophy professor wrote this bit, we are, and I can quote you pretty much from memory, ape brain meat bags, which is basically, you know, what you need. This is just basic Gnosticism from the early church. You just need to get rid of your body because the only thing that matters is your thoughts, and we can put your thoughts on a hard drive so you can live forever. You kind of go, do you even know what you're saying at this point? This is one of those things where you look around the room and go, am I the only guy here that thinks this is really stupid? But of course you can't say that because, you know, well, or maybe you can, like Felicity, and take the consequences. Huh. So. The greatest of all evils is not to be tempted. Let's just, just pause here. The greatest all is not to be tempted. Just want to observe that if you give in to every temptation, you're no longer tempted. If you love every sin, you're no longer tempted. If you misuse anyone you can, you're no longer tempted. Temptation's over, it's executed. The greatest of all evils is not to be tempted because then there are grounds for believing that the devil looks upon us as his property. The psalmist, why do the wicked prosper? 
they prosper in part because the devil leaves them alone and even helps them. Why do the wicked prosper? Because they're no longer tempted. The temptations have come to reality. So we should, in one sense, be much, much more afraid of our world. We should be much, much more afraid. And then, to console you, I also want you to know you should be much less afraid. So what often happens is when you start to open your eyes for all these things, um, and you start to see it, and then it's difficult to see how much there is, you know, is it 40 people who are talking this way or 400,000 or 40 million talking this way, right? It's very difficult to us to evaluate because of how data is skewed and how it comes to us. Okay, fair enough. Well, we should be more afraid of it, but we should also be less afraid. So, um, try this from Jesus. I do not ask for these only, so not just for the 12 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So, this is a prayer for you. So, before he goes to the cross, Jesus stops to pray for you. This is very, very important. Jesus is not only praying for them, he's praying for you. I do not ask only for these, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all might, may be one, like that you'll hold together, you know, like people going to the arena together. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, and they are in us. Look at that. Joined to the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit, by the way. So Jesus is joined to the Father, the Father is joined to the Son, the Son is joined to you. That joins you back to the Father. It's all right here. That you may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And this is extraordinarily important too, which is, look, let's just take the, let's just take the story of St. Felicity at face value, okay? If you've been to the Colosseum, for example, you can imagine what that was like. And you can also imagine that someone who died in the horrible ways in which they died, you can imagine that there was someone there who said, had some inkling, this is not right. One of the ways that you give a witness to the world is to do things that are true and let the chips fall where they fall. And this is why so many saints go to their death with joy. It's frankly why so many saints just go to their death. Because they know they're connected to Jesus, they know they're connected to the Father, they know they're connected to truth and to light. They know that death is a liminal experience where they pass through a membrane from one side to the other and then they live forever ever in all those good things. I again am not saying to you this means you give up. I am saying to you that you don't despair, come what may, you're in God's hands. And I'm also saying to you that your good life becomes a witness to other people. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. They could be the church. So here's another reason to, I mean the sermon this morning, to live within the gifts that God gives us. I mean, we spend, the church spends so much time squabbling in congregations and squabbling among itself. You know, what about the witness to the world? When all of our energy is spent internecine, you know, brother to brother, sister to sister fight, when all of our energy is, we don't have any energy left 
to be loving in the world. Light on the hill. The world may, they sent me, ah, I am in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know, what? That you sent me and you love them even as you loved me. Uh, in another startling announcement, we're not gonna get finished. So, um, <laughs> just, just hold on, we'll be back next week. But just for this, just, we'll go through St. Teresa and then we'll stop, okay? You should, given all of that, despite the horrors of the world, go out with your eyes up and your wits intact. Because Jesus is here with you, as are his angels, protecting you from the demons that are just here and marching you together with all your brothers and sisters in Christ into a world that hates you and cannot destroy you unless God gives his okay. So take, it, take this from you know, St. Teresa. I mean, she's a remarkable sort of person. Uh, people who got really familiar with the demons also got really unafraid of the demons. Since Jesus, ah, so two things. I'm gonna do two things for you, but this is the most important. I don't know if you know this, but this is so important for you and for me. The devil cannot make you sin. It's not in fact true that the devil made me do it. You have a new intellect and a new will. You bear the Holy Spirit. The devil cannot make you sin. By the way, the world cannot make you sin and your own sinful flesh cannot make you sin. To be a Christian is to have an option, a holy option. So just start with the devil. The devil cannot make you sin as hard as it gets. He cannot make you. Your sin is an act of your own intellect and will. When you sin, it's because you choose to sin. Right? And of course, all that's been diagrammed out about different kinds of sins and passive and active. Okay, forget all that. The most important thing for right now is the devil can't make you sin. You are not unempowered. Right? You're not impotent in this way. If you sin, it's because you chose to sin. It's very important to say that because the Holy Spirit lives in you and he frankly is always in your ear telling you, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. So um, I, just, and I just gave you, this is complicated, but you know, you're smart, so just you know, go with it. You can, you can do this. The demons have not the courage to assail any of those whom they see ready to give in to them. So you may look weak and quite sinful, and you may have touched a whole range of things that are not good for you, the demons cannot follow up and do what they do uh, unless God allows them. This is the first paragraph, is a little complicated, so I just give you this. The demons have not the courage. They don't go on their own. They don't go unless, like Job, God nods an assent in some sense. The demons have not the courage to assail any of those whom they see ready to give in to them, or when God permits them to do so, for the greater good of his servants, whom they may tempt and torment. So you're, you're tempted in your torment. Yes, you can also, it can always be towards your giving in. It can also be towards your greater good. The example of Felicity Perpetua is the temptation to apostatize, to deny Christ, they used for their greater good. May it please his majesty that we 
fear him whom we ought to fear. So we should fear God and we do fear God and understand that one venial sin can do us more harm than all held together for that's so. The evil spirits keep us in terror. This is so interesting. Just because we want to. And in your own reflections about what you're afraid of and what you give into, you might begin, this is toward Lent and making a good confession, you might begin to think about the things that you maybe even unconsciously want to do that are unholy. And the devil is only there to aid you because your own flesh, we'll talk about this later, prompts you. It's a great pity. But if, so here's the way out, for the love of God, we hated all of this. If we hated evil and we loved good, if we hated all this and embraced the cross, get a crucifix, put it in front of your eyes for Lent, and set about his service in earnest, the devil flees away before such realities as from the plague. Why do you have incense? Jesus loves it, the devil hates it. Why is Jesus on the cross? Jesus loves it, the devil hates it. Why is there beauty today? In the bells, in the candles, in the linens. Jesus loves it, the devil hates it. Why do you do good? Jesus loves it, the devil hates it, and he'll flee what he hates. You'll get that at Lent 1 when he flees Jesus for not giving in. He is the friend of lies and the lie himself. He will have no pact with those who walk in the earth. I do not understand those terrors I do not understand Christians in America in the last four years. I do not understand those who cry out, demon, demon, when we may say, God, God, and make Satan tremble. I do not understand. Do we know that he cannot stir without the permission of God? So he can't attack without God's permission, and when he attacks, he can't make you sin without your permission. It's, there's two layers at least of protection before you do evil. What does it mean? I am really much more afraid of those people who have so great a fear of the devil than I am of the devil himself. He can do me no harm. And the reason we're afraid, so afraid, is that we think he can do us harm all the time. All right, so as you think about the devil, um, more and less, and then we'll come back and do a little bit more. And then next week, I'll talk just a very little bit about fasting. I think not very much because I've done so much in the past and I don't want to always give you the same stuff year after year. And then I want to talk about Lenten discipline. And so we'll finish this and do that and we'll see what happens. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. See you.